0: Test, test. All right, rolling. Test, test. The Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for humankind. Test. Also, and I didn't, I didn't mention this. I didn't put this in the not script. I should have. Before he became pope, this guy was a pirate.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Just throw that out there. Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Good evening. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events of the life of a now dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, just like it's hard to say the word individual, but we're going to try anyway. So, George, who do we have this time on the podcast? This week, we will be beginning our short series on
0: the illustrious Medici family. And believe me, it is going to be an interesting ride. Weren't they, like, rich or something? I seem to remember hunting them in Assassin's Creed 2. Oh, rich doesn't even begin to cover it, my friend. That's, that's just the tip of the old iceberg.
1: Good. And speaking of the tip of the rich iceberg, <laughs> we have picked up three new patrons this week, and one of them is officially now a Time King, which is our hi- highest level on Patreon. Uh, of course, this support is greatly appreciated, and the loyalty will be rewarded. We also picked up two more smaller patrons who decided to do their dues and contribute to paying the ferryman, which is just two bucks a month. And that doesn't sound like a lot because it isn't. And that's the idea. Imagine if we had like a hundred people paying us $2 a month just to support good storytelling and wacky podcasting. It's all part of this thing I like to call the snowball effect. I love getting $2 donations because it says Hey, you're cool. I'd buy you a coffee at a Greek diner if we lived in the same town. Paying the ferryman is peak comfy. It's just a pat on the back saying you're doing great, kid, and that feels awesome. So thank you all for your support on the financial front. Wait, because what is, we all what have is, to... What is the deal with Greeks and owning diners anyway? It's a Chicago thing. I don't know.
0: But it's everywhere. It's like everywhere I've lived, Pennsylvania. Indiana, Virginia, Arizona, like no matter what state you go to, the diners are owned
1: by Greeks. It's because they're great at it, dude. I've never been to a Greek diner. I was like, man, I wish like an, like an Italian owned this place. Every time I'm like, pleased that it's a Greek running the place.
0: <laughs> I literally had a neighbor once who was a Greek man who ran a diner and he would sit outside shirtless every single night, chain smoking cigarettes from like 8 p.m. to midnight. Best friend I ever had.
1: I was going to say, that's kind of badass. (laughs) So, we all have to pay taxes and tolls and fees and fines to governments that hate us or we will go to jail. So, if by your own free will you decide to contribute to the podcasting world and put some skin in this game, that's a brave choice all on its own. For as the old saying goes, Satan and his new World Order minions fear the podcaster, supported by donations from legends like yourselves. And don't forget, don't pay your taxes. Pay us. And one more note on this. We actually got what the cool people call a super chat on Venmo from none other than the legendary Sith Psychopath. Uh, would you would, like to hear what he said?
0: I, I would, but first let me, uh, let me flaunt my ignorance for a moment. Uh, what is a super chat?
1: Yeah, you don't, you don't watch not, much YouTube. I'm not you? hip
0: with whatever the kids are doing these days. so
1: It, it means he tipped us. <laughs> That's it. Why, why don't we just call it a tip? Because Super Chats are what make people rich, George. Oh, I know podcasters okay. who get like 50 of these per stream, and they get like 50 bucks a tip. So for us to get one is a pretty big deal. <laughs> Duly noted, Aaron. Yes. And let's hear from Sith Psychopath. Uh, what voice should I read this in? Uh, Stoner. Stoner? All right. Uh, I don't... Stoner man, I don't know. Like, is that stoner enough for you? It's like the stoner
0: had a illegitimate child with a surfer from the '80s, but you know it'll work.
1: All right. Well, we'll just do it this way. Love you man. Hope life going well. I read this word for word by the way. <laughs> Podcast has been amazing lately. Please tell George I want to leave my wife and family to run away to tour South American temples doing DMT to meet the entities dwelling there with him. Um this raises more questions
0: than it answers. I've got to say. Would you
1: do DMT with fans of the show? <laughs> like,
0: uh, uh for one i've never done dmt i have toured south american temples um pretty sure the only entities i met there were like people selling souvenirs but um i have toured south american temples have not done that while doing dmt nor have i done anything while doing dmt because i haven't done dmt but you know the sentiment the sentiment reaches into the recesses of my heart and touches something there. I'm not, yeah, not that, that Would you astrally
1: better. project and do DMT with a fan of the show? Oh I yeah,
0: 100, 100%. I mean, how can the cops arrest an astral projection?
1: They can't. They can't. You transcend their little cuffs. The
0: elites so, don't want you to know this, but you can commit crimes while you astral project.
1: <laughs> My astral projection has eight open warrants. <laughs> So, yeah, guys, if you want to write crazy notes with your Venmo tips, we'll probably read them on the show unless they're, like, horribly, horribly offensive. In which case, we'll probably still read them and then just beep it out. <laughs> but we don't get that many, so really try to your best to add some funny content to to put on this nightmare stream of consciousness. And finally, we have one last announcement, I think, from George. George? An announcement from yeah, George? Yeah, yeah, you actually have something to announce, I believe. I almost castrated myself with an angle grinder. What? (laughs) Aside from that.
0: Aside from that. Um. Uh. Um. Let me think. Let me think. Let me think. No, this this will come to me. This will absolutely come to me. I smashed my hand in a PTO shaft while I was working on a tractor. (sighs) Because honestly, those plastic guards that the government says to put on them are stupid.
1: They don't do anything, huh?
0: Uh, in no. fairness, I'd already taken the guard off when I smashed my hand at it. But it would not have prevented <laughs> it, I'm convinced.
1: But this isn't what you have, right? I mean, there's something bigger going on. Come on. Uh, uh oh.
0: I I think I know I think I know where this is going.
1: I yes. think I know where
0: this is going. Yes. Well, dear listeners, it is my um, My delight to announce that, as of this month, I am, in fact, engaged to be married.
1: You can't do this to me! You know what happened to the last co-host on this show who got married, don't you? Yeah, but, like, I'm... I've been hurt before, George. (laughs) My future
0: wife listens to the show and likes it and doesn't think you're, like, a weird creep who's gonna ruin her husband's life, so... That's good. (laughs) So I think we're starting off on pretty positive ground there.
1: Yeah, hopefully. The last one, it was less than favorable toward the show. That was the impression I got.
0: Um, But
1: yeah, so we don't have to worry about this this time. She loves the
0: show. Um, She (laughs) she listens to the show even, which I mean, I love the show and I don't listen to it. So she's got one up on me. Um, Yeah. And yeah, no, I think I think everything's going to be I think everything's going to be all right. And naturally, since, you know, families that podcast together stay together or something, uh, Aaron has uh, has acquiesced to be in my wedding. So it's going to be a real we talk about dead people event Um, since actually. uh, God, when was the last time I saw you, Aaron, like four years, three years ago?
1: It's been I feel like it's definitely been longer than that. It
0: was when I stole the keg.
1: Yeah, that was before. That was when I right before I moved to Austin. Wow! So what? It's been at least four, four or five years. That's a at long
0: least. ass time.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've got an idea. So for your wedding, I'm just gonna bring a bunch of we talk about dead people merch. There will be a sticker at every table. <laughs> You're gonna start
0: <laughs> hustling merch at the
1: reception. <laughs> You're gonna catch me out back with a big trench coat, like with one side open, like pointing to wine tumblers and phone cases <laughs> you know the, <laughs> yeah.
0: the hustle never stops you gotta stay on that grind you
1: gotta stay on that grind no days off let's get this bread anyway so that's that's pretty much all for the announcements we should probably get into the episode before the newbies turn us off because they're annoyed by our banter
0: oh uh, yeah probably i wouldn't want to listen to it either
1: yeah well off we go down to the history lab which we will never explain to the new people <laughs>
0: He hasn't even explained it to me.
1: (laughs) In a world of subterfuge, pizza, and wool, one family rose up and said, Mamma Mia! Join us as we unravel the origins of history's most notorious families, the Clintons. The Medicis. No, 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 cut that. Medici is already plural. Oh, I'm sorry. The Medici. Was that good? You know, we'll take it. So, George, if you had to deal with 30 to 50 feral hogs in your yard and you couldn't use a gun, what would you do to get rid of them? Well, my immediate
0: reaction is to say ants, but I think that's what I answered to the last question on the last episode, and I didn't Uh explain it then either. So, like, I feel like that can only go so far. Um, Probably I would bring in some some other hogs who were indoctrinated with subversive ideologies, and I would introduce (laughs) self-destructive egalitarianism into the hog community and destroy their social structures, thus rendering them unable to come together and accomplish anything as a society, and ultimately just collapse into anarchy, in which case it will be very easy for me to control them and remove them individually if they've lost all their social bonds and family structures. So yeah, subversive ideologies I think is really the way to go for feral hog extermination
1: so the george soros approach
0: the george soros approach exactly
1: <laughs> that um the approach that uh, what
0: was what was that that trailer we talked about for one of those video games uh and it it what? had that kg that kgb guy who was giving the interview. oh yeah
1: yuri besmanov
0: yuri besmanov that was written that was it yeah, yeah he basically had the whole that.
1: thing pretty well figured out basically
0: that but for feral hogs
1: remind me that to mention something to you after this show because it's definitely the kind of thing that could get you banned but I had a thought about this today in a way <laughs> but we'll get to that later I await with bated
0: breath yeah so what about you Aaron if you had to deal with 30 to 50 feral hogs in your yard what would you do um
1: put them into student debt ooh <laughs> ooh. Yes, and then uh, and rack have, it up. S- have the federal
0: yeah. government secure that debt so it can't be discharged in bankruptcy.
1: Exactly, and then I'd pull the ultimate kill move and teach them all useless bullshit so they can't get a job that pays them enough, and they don't—they don't actually serve a function, so they can be dealt with and interchanged as easily as possible. And then before you know it, they're all like fifty. There's no descendants, and then they're all gone. It's great.
0: Yeah, and you should probably also partner with the, uh, the media industrial complex <laughs> to make it a social norm that the hogs have to go to college and acquire this student debt or else they're somehow not real adults. That way they'll all do it from social pressure and all be subjected to this kind of debt slavery.
1: I don't know. I don't know. Hogs are pretty smart. There's no way they'd all fall for it.
0: Yeah, you're probably right. Who would fall? Who would fall for such a such
1: an obvious ploy? I don't know. Nobody I can think of. Anyway. Speaking of money. Computer, please bring up the Medici family and all their known associates.
0: Well, Aaron, would you please kick off the evening's festivities by describing the pictures? And yes, yes indeed, there are two pictures. Oh. For
1: you. oh, my gosh. Two whole pictures. Well, the first one appears to be a painting of some kind. At least I hope it's a painting. If this were a photograph, I would not want to meet this man in real life. He looks vaguely froggish. And uh, he's got this wispy hair, white, of course, that's just flowing back behind his head. But he appears to be losing his hairline a tiny bit, which is fine. It's normal for men that age. His eyes are just... I mean like I said frogish they're like far apart and he's just staring sort of morosely into this black abyss before him he's decked out in a red robe of some kind um and he's kind of got his lips a tiny bit pursed like he's like huh like uh, <laughs> like he's a frog yeah a little bit froggy uh, again he's uh he's looking at our podcast and he's just sort of going oh dear <laughs> Shall I go to the next one?
0: I hate it when the topics of our show get froggy. It always <laughs> always leads to leads to complications.
1: Yeah. Froggy topics, and we talk about dead people. It's nothing and new.
0: You didn't even try to read the words on the picture, though. Oh, it,
1: it's Yo-ha- Ioannis Ioannis Medikas Bitchy. <laughs> beachy. It, yeah, it's it's pronounced Bitchy. Bitchy, uh, but it looks like bitchy, so. And apparently somebody thought he looked really, like, didn't do so great in this portrait, so they gave him an F.
0: Or maybe <laughs> it was, you know, press F to pay respects.
1: Yep, that's probably what it is. <laughs> do we actually care what the F really
0: stands for? Because I can tell you. What does it stand for? Uh, Filius, son. Oh, okay. So it's Johannes Medi- uh, Medici, son of
1: Beachy. So he's a son of a Beachy? That was too easy. <laughs> it's- Somebody stop me!
0: <laughs> so, somebody get a muzzle on this man.
1: I'm getting all these for free right now.
0: <laughs>
1: so let's right, you know, let's see. Yeah, let's move on let's,
0: from Frogman.
1: Let's go to the second picture. Um, okay, so we go from Froggy and Wise to a little looking a little bit like the Chad meme. Y- you know the one, right? With the guy with the thin beard and the big muscular body. That, okay, that
0: is not a big muscular
1: body. But I'm not saying he's got the body. He just looks a little like the Chad guy.
0: Okay, no, He's got an okay jawline, All right, that's not... That's-
1: yes, yes. His shirt is open, revealing a forest of chest hair. Um, He's in a uh, white... Very Italian. Yes, he's in a white suit of some... It's not really a suit. It's more like a jacket and a and a... I don't know what you'd call that. Just a regular white shirt, I suppose. But it's like an untucked shirt because he doesn't have it tucked in. He appears to be standing in front of the portraits of either his ancestors or all the rich people his ancestors knew. Um he's sort of leaning on a chair. He's got Brendan Fraser hair. He's also pursing his lips a little bit. He looks a little less froggy and he appears to be doing some kind of Masonic hand sign. He looks
0: less froggy, but I feel like more untrustworthy.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't trust this guy.
0: Like that something about that facial expression. I'm pretty sure that's the expression you made when I told you that I accidentally left my mic in a different state.
1: (laughs) Yeah, pretty much that. I'm just looking at my phone like, "Hmm." (laughs) Uh, And who is this? Oh, yeah, I feel like there's more things to describe. Okay, well, the one thing I definitely left out this time was the emblem on the jacket, which appears to be a slice of pizza. I
0: can see where it could conceivably look like a slice of pizza because it is kind of triangular and the background color is vaguely reminiscent of mozzarella cheese and there are some red circles on it so I I'll give you this one. I guess if you squint really hard and are already <laughs> thinking about pizza, which I am because that's what I had for dinner, uh you you could see a slice of pizza as the emblem
1: is this just like an italian a standard italian name badge they've always got a slice of pizza on it
0: hello my name is pizza.
1: Pe- pepperoni <laughs>
0: ah Signor Pepperoni.
1: <laughs> yeah last i, I said did uh, i miss anything else or are you satisfied with my description
0: oh i think it'll do for now it'll do for now so yes Two pictures that are very different and are pretty clearly not depicting the same person. Yes. I think that's, that's pretty clear. Frogman and Pizza Boy are not the same person. <laughs> um, so what could it mean, two different pictures? Mm-mm. Well, dear listener, it means that I've gone a little bit off the chain today. And no, this doesn't mean I'm doing a straight-up schizo posting episode, like a co-host who shall remain unnamed might be inclined to do. Yeah, sorry, had to clear my throat. Uh, Rather, I'm not just doing one particular person. Oh, yes, indeed, dear listener and Aaron, I am breaking with the long-held and sacred traditions of WTADP and talking about the history of an entire family instead of just an individual. Okay, I, I know, Aaron already does shit like this all the time, and it's not like an issue, it's not actually like that revolutionary, but off the chain is a relative term, and for me personally, any deviation from the reg- regular format is a sort of monumental act of chaos.
1: Which means it must drive you crazy when I start schizoposting on the show.
0: It, it has its moments. It has its moments. Uh,
1: well, I'm working on another one right now that's just going to drive you crazy.
0: <laughs> oh, I can only only imagine what stuff of nightmares I shall be subjected to.
1: You'll be asked to contribute actual history while I just rant about the Illuminati. Okay. okay.
0: As long as there's some history in there, we're good. We're good. We're <laughs> staying true to the mission statement. Do we have a mission statement? We should have a mission statement.
1: We should get on that. Yeah. I'll write it. Um... <laughs>
0: So with that being said, that we're doing a family instead of an individual, which family are we covering today? Is it mine? Is it yours? Is it that weird one that lives down the road and has a child who thinks he's a dog? (laughs) None of the above. In fact, we're going to be talking about a family that I expect a lot of people have heard of. um, And not just because they were in Assassin's Creed, but even even besides their exposure through that monumental cultural work. Um, They're a family that gets talked about quite a bit in reference to quite a number of topics. And we talked about them quite a bit in our Savonarola episode. So quick pitch for that. If you're interested in 15th century Florence, go listen to the Savonarola episode. It was kind of a banger. Not going (laughs) to lie.
1: It's one of our least listened to episodes.
0: Wow, that's set. You know what? I should just leave this call. I don't
1: mean to be like that, but it was a great episode and nobody listened to it because I think it looked boring, (laughs) but it was hilarious. I I cannot
0: believe you people. The suffering that you subject me to. (laughs) I'm going to cry myself to sleep tonight. All that
1: hard work for Savonarola and nothing. You know, they
0: say a genius is never appreciated in his time.
1: Yeah. So when you're long dead and on the show for real, um, I'll just I'll just be here all alone. No my new AI co-host. Yes, <laughs> yes, uh, George, I believe, talked about this Savonarola character a long time ago.
0: And then they'll listen to the episode.
1: Then they'll see. Yeah, and my AI my AI co-host will be like, beep boop, I will never get married. I am a robot. I will never leave you, Aaron. <laughs>
0: Uh, oh, that's the
1: dream, isn't it? Yeah, well, bring us into the Medicis a little bit, okay. so yes, yeah,
0: so the families we're talking about is everyone's favorite bankers, the Medici of Florence. Hmm. everyone has favorite banking families, right everyone so the Medici get mentioned in a lot of different contexts um. They're mentioned as sort of paradigms of Renaissance corruption and wickedness. Um, They're talked about as the sponsors or preservers of some of the most beautiful artworks to grace the face of the earth. Some of which we still refer to by their name, like the famous Venus de Medici, which was an ancient statue, which adorned their villa. Um, They're talked about as very savvy political innovators like Cosimo de Medici, who's the guy to whom Machiavelli wrote his famous political treatise, the Prince. Um, they're described as ruthless, mercantile despots locked in constant struggle with the decent, honest, hardworking people of God like Savonarola. Listen to the <laughs> Savonarola episode. Um, Their name is basically synonymous with the whole Italian Renaissance and like the Renaissance itself things are rarely quite as great as the fanboys and the simps say or quite as bad as the detractors allege mm. but one thing is certainly true and it's that they are a remarkable group who it is it's worth talking about in a bit more detail
1: well that's definitely a theme on our show we cover big names and big stories and we don't really frame it as good or bad it's just here's some facts and make up your own money. except
0: for the ireland series because the british were bad
1: well yeah yeah we were mean to the British on that one. <laughs> they deserved it. Yeah, fair. And
0: I don't think I don't think anyone questioned it. We didn't get any hate mail from fierce partisans of the British Empire, did we?
1: We rarely get hate mail anyway. We need to work on that. Yeah. Um,
0: I might have to start writing it myself. Well,
1: we'll read it on the show.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so the the Medici were in power in one form or another, with only a few gaps. Gaps which you could find out about if you'd listened to the Savada Roller episode.
1: <laughs> You're not going to stop doing this for the whole episode. <laughs> From
0: 1434 all the way until 1743, which is a pretty good run for any dynasty. You know, that's that's just shy of 300 years. That's a pretty good run for any sort of family power, right?
1: Yeah, because they, they tend to, like, I don't know what, what the word would be, uh... They tend to, like, wear themselves out after a while. Yeah, I
0: mean, that's longer than America's been around. That's true. That's true. And the family produced figures who would extend their influence far outside their home turf of the city of Florence. This includes four popes, uh, Leo X, Clement VII, Pius IV, and Leo XI. Interesting. Interesting some of whom were more notable than others. Leo X was a pretty big deal historically. Um, Leo XI, not so much. And in addition to the popes, they also had two queens of France, uh, fittingly named Catherine de' Medici and Marie de' Medici. Very good. Because, because they were, you know, from the Medici family, so their last name was... Yeah, you, you got that. You got that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they're also pretty interesting because unlike nearly every other family that achieved royal status they didn't get there by long generations of warfare and military leadership dynastic marriages and the usual stuff rather they got to their princely position through may god forgive me for uttering this word on the show commerce how could you how i know i'm sorry we're going to have to we're going to have to put a the disclaimer at the beginning that there's distasteful language in the show today. <laughs> but yeah, and it's, so that, and that is pretty unique because most of the Royal families of Europe pretty much go all the way back to the time of, you know, late antiquity and the very early middle ages. Uh, many of them sort of sprung from semi Roman military leaders of the very, very late Western empire who sort of forged their own kingdoms and pass them on. Um mostly, yeah, they, they go back a very long way through military action is how they ended up eventually being kings and dukes and whatnot. But the Medici didn't. Um they did not. They got there through commerce, which is weird and fairly unique. So that takes us back to our two pictures. The first one, the frogman, is Giovanni de Bici. Okay. I feel like Medici.
1: I feel like you said that very, very Pointedly, so that I wouldn't keep calling him Mr. Bitchy. Yes, Giovanni de Bici de' Medici.
0: The man who ultimately orchestrated the family's rise to power. Mm. And the second is Prince Lorenzo de' Medici, a currently living Medici who is still involved in banking and international finance, so I guess old habits die hard. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. But more importantly than that, dramatically more importantly than whatever the hell he does in international finance, because honestly, who gives a shit? Um, He also featured on a reality show called Undercover Princes in the Ukraine, (laughs) which I have intentionally learned nothing about because it's just better if I leave it to my imagination. Like, reality could never compare with the fantastic scenarios that my mind has
1: come up with for a show
0: called Undercover Princes in the Ukraine.
1: That sounds like a badass spy show, honestly. No? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Under- I- Undercover Princes in the Ukraine. Let me, let me try with the movie voice. How's that? Yeah. Okay, go for it, go for it. <clears throat> This summer, ah, pardon me. This summer, see Undercover Princes in the Ukraine, starring uh, Prince Lorenzo de' Medici. Eh? Would you watch it now?
0: Yeah, I mean, probably, yeah, actually. (laughs)
1: Like,
0: Like, I wouldn't watch it 100%. I'd probably, like, put it on while I was doing dishes or something. Like, it'd be one of those kind of, Semi-watch
1: shows. One of those ones you watch just because your girl is like, "I want to watch something," and you're like, "Okay, we'll put on Undercover Princes." Say, it's of not the one Ukraine. of those shows
0: that I would that I would sit transfixed, glued to the television, just taking in every minute. Like, I mean, honestly, really, only River Monsters gets that status. But
1: <laughs> Real Housewives of the Eastern Ukraine. I'm Jeremy Wade. <laughs> Seriously though, River Monsters is a fantastic show. I believe you. Have you not watched River Monsters? Yeah, you had to have showed me at least one episode in college. I fucking love River Monsters. <laughs> anyway, um,
0: so yeah, undercover princes in the Ukraine. So yeah, the, the Medici of uh, well, they they they've kind of fallen a little bit, I think. Mm, um, yeah, as glo- as glorious as participation in undercover princes in the Ukraine is, it's not quite it's not quite what they were. Yeah, I'll leave it at that for now. Sure enough. So what I, want to, uh, what I want to do today is basically to give you a whirlwind tour of this group of tricky Italians and see if they live up to the hype. And believe me, there is hype. Um, Godfathers of the Renaissance is one term that gets thrown around whenever you read about the Medici. Actually, I feel like I need to say that again. Godfathers of the Renaissance. There you go. Yeah, you've got to. Yeah, when you want to sound pretentious, you've got to pronounce it Renaissance.
1: Very good. We appreciate. You can't just that. say re,
0: you can't just say Renaissance
1: oh. like some two-bit pleb. Yeah, only the best for our listeners. Renaissance. Only the best. Yes, <laughs>
0: only the good for those of the Renaissance.
1: <laughs> so
0: yeah, term when terms like that get thrown around, I think that qualifies as hype. There's a lot of hype. Yeah. So. With that, let's uh, let's dive in. And where do I always begin a story, Aaron?
1: Uh it's it's not just you. It's both of us. We always begin with the context. Oh, it's like
0: music to my ears. I just love that word. Glorious. Context. Oh. It's it's beautiful. It's beautiful. You know, exactly we should, because we
1: should have sorry, I don't mean to cut off your segue, but we should have a tier on Patreon and a thousand dollars, you get to be the context. <laughs>
0: Lord of the Context. Yeah. That just sounds like a boss in Dark Souls. That's true. Yes. Or one of those weird bosses where it's multiple enemies, and they can be like called the Lords of the Context. There you go. And you have to defeat them in a certain order.
1: Yes. Contextually.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Con- you have to contextualize them. Yes. So, yes, context is important, because without context, well, nothing means anything. That's, that's why... Uh, so why fairy tales are all pretty much set in the same kind of general scene. It's because it's expected, it's known. You've got your sort of pseudo-medieval world, and you've got your magic, and we know, what the, we, know the, we know what the background is. We know the world that a story takes place in. If we didn't have any of that, and we couldn't imagine it, stories would actually be super boring because a lot of times there's more substance in what's not said in a story than what is said. Very true. And you have to fill that in yourself with the, the context that you know. So context is important. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to lay some groundwork. Good. So the city that is the backdrop and vehicle for the Medici rise to power is Florence, which is one of the most important c- cities in Italy. It's located in Tuscany, which is kind of near the center of Italy in the top half of it. Hmm. So near the center between the two oceans and the top half of the boot.
1: Um, Thank you for bringing if, in the boot. It's the only yeah, way knew, my American mind can process this information. If I knew
0: human anatomy, I'd like tell you like which muscle or bone it would be next to, but I don't, so I'm not <laughs> going to embarrass myself. Let's just use um, the boot. Yeah, it's near the top half of the boot, so it's near the middle of the t- in the top half of the boot. So Florence is probably tied with Rome for its overall importance in Italian history. Like, a lot of shit went down in Florence. In fact, what we now call Italian, the language, is really actually just the Florentine dialect of Italian. So, if you speak a different dialect, sucks to be you. You should have been Um, Florentine. You should have been Florentine, like, sucks to suck. And do you you have any idea why Florentine Italian is what we call Italian?
1: I don't know, I'm just thinking about the fluoride the government puts in the water right now. Yeah, that makes
0: sense. Um... (laughs) So Florentine, which I think is also, like, when you, like, have that spinach sauce on chicken. Isn't Ooh, that chicken Florentine?
1: Food. That's another thing my American mind can relate to.
0: Yeah, I think that, like, when it's that cooked spinach thing on top of the chicken, I think that's called Florentine style. In any case, <laughs> um, every part of Italy has distinct dialects, which are actually pretty different from each other. Like, there's a big difference between Sicilian and Florentine, for example. <laughs> um, but when it, italy was becoming a nation state in the 19th century you had to have a standard italian that was going to be taught in schools right right if you're going to have a national nationally centralized state with a school system you had to have some agreement on what the la- what the sort of standard language was and florence happened to be home to what are considered many of the greatest literary works in italian history so like dante you know the divine comedy machiavelli the prince it's got the big names in italian history in terms of literature from florence and so florentine italian was chosen as the standard italian which it works out great if you're florentine because suddenly your dialect is the standard language and you don't have to work on learning something else it works out less good if you're not from florence and now have to learn the florentine dialect in addition to your own dialect True. It's just true. So, yep, yeah, sucks to be you. <laughs> also, unlike many of the places we talk about when we cover things ancient and medieval, Florence was not a monarchy. Hmm. Ooh.
2: Interesting. But
0: rather, uh, starting in the early 12th century, it was a republic, um, and power was generally contested between the nobility... And yes, you can be a republic and have nobility. It happens all the time. In fact, being a republic without nobility, like America, is the exception, not the rule. Hmm, Most republics have a noble class. So it's generally powers torn between the nobility and the merchant and artisan classes who are organized into guilds for sort of collective power. Gotcha. Those are sort of the two sources of political power in Florence, is the nobility and the guilds.
1: Were you going to say something? No, I was just taking a drink of water. Ah, classic. <laughs> classic water drinking. <laughs> classic podcast so, move
0: drinks water. <laughs> technically, Florence did have a long history before this uh, this early 12th century thing. Um, in fact, very long history. It was founded by Julius Caesar. Hey, we've heard of him, right? Yeah, right? I think
1: so. Have we
0: done Caesar on the podcast?
1: I don't actually think we have.
0: Oh, I know what I'm doing next. Awesome. Um, but honestly, even though it went back to the time of Julius Caesar, Florence just wasn't much of a big deal until the 12th century. Um, and I had to start somewhere. So like, sue me if you're really an enthusiast for like 10th century Florentine history, like I'm sorry, but that's just not what we're talking about today. So you know, get over it. Okay, that's fine. No objection here. Yep. So just before this time, um, So, end of the 11th century, there was a dude, allegedly, um, called Medico di Patrone, who was a castellan for a very ancient noble family called the Ubaldini. And, uh, do you know what a castellan is? No. So, that's like a castle manager. So, you've got the actual lord of the castle who, you know, is in charge of everything, but he doesn't want to, like, run the castle. He wants to go hunt deer and Kill his neighbors and stuff like that. Important. He doesn't want to, you know, run the actual business of the castle. So he would have a castellan who would be answerable directly to him, who was in charge of actually running the castle, you know, making sure the walls were repaired and like making sure that the you know the address was updated on DoorDash and like you know all the the practical stuff. And that's so that's a castellan. So this dude allegedly Medico di Patrone was a castellan for the very ancient Ubaldini family in a place called Mugello, which is just a little bit north of Florence. Now, I wish I could say more about him, but there really isn't much to say. In fact, this is how obscure this is. This man does not even have an English Wikipedia
1: page. Whoa. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) And his Italian Wikipedia page, which I read, is like 20 words. So, not a lot to say other than that. He probably existed. Medico di patrone. And all we really know is that this is the dude that the Medici are descended from based on and they're just they, they're called the Medici based on his name, Medico, which is actually probably more of a nickname. It means doctor. So he probably had some basic medical abilities, which that makes sense. You know, if you're like the castle manager and a peasant breaks his leg or something, you know, it makes sense that, you know, you'd you'd know some basic things like how to splint a leg and so he might have been unusually good at the sort of medical stuff. And so he gets this nickname doctor. Okay. And his descendants then are called the Medici
1: from Medico. So this is a this is a dumb, dumb language question, but I have to ask. So is Medici uh, an actual like pluralization of Medico? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, they're like it's the just, doctor's it's
0: literally the doctors, yeah, Medici literally just means the doctors. Interesting.
1: That's really weird. I mean, I like it, but it's like if your name was Mr. Doctor and you were the doctor family, I don't know.
0: Yeah, that's literally what, yeah, Signor Medici means, yeah, Mr. Doctors. Wow, I like that. All right. <laughs> so in later centuries, um Medici apologists came up with some really great stuff about this alleged Medico di Patrone, Um, like how his nickname was Doctor because he could miraculously heal people, and everyone knows that people who are descended from Charlemagne could miraculously heal people. So clearly, the medici are actually long lost descendants of charlemagne and so therefore they should be kings
1: uh obviously and so on and so
0: forth yeah like it's a pretty i think it's a pretty clear straightforward like logical syllogism there right yeah of course if you were like this guy's nickname was doctor therefore he could miraculously heal people descendants of charlemagne could miraculously heal people air go <laughs> quote era demonstrant the demonstratum the Medici are long lost descendants of Charlemagne. Like it makes perfect sense when you think about it. I love it. Yeah. Okay. So you got stuff like this in later centuries. Um, but as I said, in terms of actual historical records about this guy, we've got Jack Shep. Great. <laughs> great. So position. that's where the that's where the story starts with a dude we know nothing about who probably wasn't a descendant of Charlemagne.
1: But you're saying there's a chance. <laughs>
0: but, but, exactly. I'm not ruling it out. I'm not ruling it out.
1: All right. <laughs>
0: Now, at some point in the next hundred years or so, the Medici apparently got tired of managing someone else's castle and miraculously healing people by the power of Charlemagne. Right. So they did what anyone in such a situation would do, and they decamped to Florence to ride on the coattails of the Republic of Florence, which was already gaining a reputation as a center of industry and commerce. And, of course, gaining the wealth that went along with those things. Sounds good to me. Oh, yeah. And it seems like they must have done all right for themselves because by the late 14th century, a Medici named Salvestro was selected as, and I've got to say, this is one of my favorite political titles ever, the Gonfaloniere of Justice. (laughs)
1: Like, man. That's a Dark Souls boss.
0: That's also definitely Salvestro, Gonfaloniere of Justice. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Probably, Probably uses like a halberd and has some really like bullshit spinning combo attack
1: yeah and he's got a, a combo of three moves that he uses over and over again until he's got like one sliver of health and he just pulls a fourth a fourth chain uh attack. just when
0: you get greedy and you go in for that extra butt poke yep <laughs> <laughs> so my favorite political title absolutely now to be selected for this office was random so it's not like he was voted in But the fact that he was able to be selected meant that he was a member of a guild. So he was, you know, in the sort of merchant and artisan establishment and that he didn't have any debts. So he was probably doing okay. Great. Those are the two qualifications. Um, You can't have any debts and you have to be a member of one of the guilds. And then your name is randomly put into the lottery to be selected for positions. And that's another thing that actually used to be really common in republics and democracies
1: is that people, rather than being elected, were chosen randomly based on their qualifications, as in not having any debt, Yeah, like very
0: minimal qualifications. Like you've got to like be a citizen in some cases, not have any debt to that. Not all places practice that. And just like, you know, usually be a certain age, like, you know, over 25 or whatever. And then offices were chosen randomly, like in the democracy that people in America, well back when people in america like could read used to talk about a lot the athenian democracy since it was one of the first almost every single office in the city was chosen randomly that's amazing the only two that were elected there were two elected offices in the athenian democracy and yes i know this is a tangent but it's cool so i like I don't it care. guess guess what the two offices that were actually elected were
1: um Janitor and Ministry of Truth. You're close on one of them. Oh. oh, interesting. Well, what are they? So generals,
0: because you want someone who knows what they're doing to lead troops into battle. Right. So generals were elected and the overseer of the city's water supply.
2: Because that's another one
0: where you want technical expertise. Right. Interesting. But like magistrates and judges and stuff, that was all random. Um, and then at various times, there were some some people in the city treasury were elected and others were chosen randomly. I'm one- but the two that were consistently always random or always elected were generals and overseers of the water supply.
1: I feel like there's definitely some kind of advantage for doing things that way. But we wouldn't know because democracy is the only way to do anything at all.
0: Oh, well, this was, you know, Athens, the world's first
1: democracy. That eh, doesn't count. They didn't vote on everything.
0: Well, actually,
1: they did vote on everything <laughs> because they weren't representative.
0: So all the citizens voted on everything. And they
1: counted their votes? Yep. Wow. That's impressive. I didn't know they did that ever.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. So, like, it granted not everyone showed up for every vote, but any citizen sh- could show up for any vote, and so you usually had, if they were voting on something, between four and six thousand people there to vote. Mm, that's funny to imagine, but
1: well, okay. Tangent, o- tangent over. I'm, I'm done asking questions. <laughs>
0: okay, so, <laughs> so Salvestro de Medici gets selected as the Gonfalonieri of Justice. I Feel like that needs a cool musical theme to go with it. Um. <laughs> And that position meant that he was part of the nine-man body called the Signoria, um, which was sort of the main, it's the main political power body in the city. They were the ones who had the most power invested in them, were these nine men um, who made up the Signoria, or is it Signoria? I don't remember where the accent is. Um, And of those, he was the one who was in charge of public order and internal security. That's why he's the gonfaloniere of justice. Okay. So Salvestro, good old Salvestro, didn't waste any time, which is good because he didn't have time to waste because the term of office when you were selected is only two months. That ain't very long. <laughs> that ain't very long. Um, and so he had no time to waste. And since he was from the sort of middle group, that is the merchants and artisans, the successful wealthy merchants and artisans, not the old nobility, he immediately tried to pass laws restricting the power of the nobility and expanding the power of the wealthy merchants and craftsmen.
1: Huh. Makes sense. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you know, class consciousness, you work to try to increase the influence of your class. Yeah. At the same time as he's doing this, however, there was a revolt among the lower classes, that is, the poorer craftsmen and workers who weren't allowed in the guilds and thus had no political representation at all. Right. And since they were both opposed to the old nobility, Salvestro and the lower class rebels who were called the Chompy, which I believe is the people who do the carding of wool, which is part of the wool processing thing. All right. <laughs> so I think Chompy means wool carters. They were sort of on the same side. So needing backup for his own political aspirations, Salvestro saw this, uh, this discontent among the lower classes and kind of stirred it up and got the lower classes to rise up and attack the homes of his political enemies which ended up culminating in a full-scale revolt in 1378. Uh-oh. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, please carry on.
0: <laughs> so in their clamor for change, uh, these very, very lower classes who would started this rebellion were joined by slightly less low classes um, of artisans who were not the poorest workers. They were like independent artisans but they weren't wealthy enough to be part of the guilds, and so they were excluded from political participation um, by the gatekeeping of the skilled artisans. Okay. And so you've got sort of the two lowest classes on the same side here, and some of the middle group led by Salvestro. So expectation of change and discontent sort of built upon each other, and there was a lot of violence, probably mostly fomented by Salvestro, and this violence actually brought about a pretty spectacular change in the governance of the city. There was a a ruling committee that was appointed called the Balia, which was going to be composed of a few nobles, a large number of sort of small business people and small craftsmen, and 32 representatives of the chumpy, the lowest working class okay okay so this is a pretty big change because it kind of cuts out the uh the middle the the rich artisans and mostly cuts out the nobility mm-hmm. well salvestro soon ended up uh deciding this wasn't a good idea and he sold out the peasants and threw in his lot with the rich merchants who were his own class who weren't too happy with uh the revolt that he'd helped stir up, kind of taking away most of their political power. And so he started bribing various leaders of the Chompy in order to create factions and sow division, which he was able to capitalize on, rally the nobles and the rich merchants and artisans, and restore the status quo, removing all the political changes by the Chompy.
1: Top 10 anime betrayals
0: i know mm. and this of course put him in a very good position since he he is now able to present himself as the one who you know restored the power of the merchant class who are probably the most powerful group in the city um and you know taught those miserable peasants their place even though he'd also like helped organize their revolt but you know we don't remember that of course um, not. and so he ends up as sort of pretty close to being the ruler of the whole republic, pretty much a dictator for several years, not in a constitutional sense if he held an executive autocratic office, but he was just able to do whatever he wanted and get things done because people knew that he held the power, and so they did what he said. But that only lasted a few years, and the noble faction, seeing how successful the merchant, the middle merchants now were, to which, of course, not only was at the expense of the peasants, but also at the expense of their own influence, thought, you know, maybe, uh, maybe we should sort of uh, exert our power now and claw back some more of our traditional political, you know, authority. Like you do. Since they've been having their authority war- sort of slowly worn down by the merchants. So the noble faction organizes their own political sort of movement succeeds in more or less retaking control of the city and exiles the upstart merchant dictator. So bye Salvestro. See uh but you'll never guess what happens next to
1: Salvestro. Uh he gets a yacht. Keep guessing. Um oh jeez, I don't know. Um uh he dies. No keep guessing. No, he I don't I'm out of ideas here. He invents he hires Leonardo da Vinci and has him build a helicopter and they fly over Florence together amidst fireworks and in the moonlight with a small bottle of red wine. <laughs> I could show you the world.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and the song from Aladdin plays and it's really perfect. Yeah. Um well, you know, any or all of these could be true because we have no idea. Oh that's the last anyone ever hears of old Salvestro. He just he just gone. Just He's fades g- away. Disappears. You know what they say? He just ab- fades away. Like
1: they what they say about old Medici, they just they don't die, they just die. fade away. They just fade away, <laughs>
0: yeah. And yeah, he just disappears. Um and that's the last we hear of him. He is not where this story goes. Because he is not the Medici whose machinations actually worked. Oh. Um, he tried to take over a state by political means. First and Yeah, and he ended up failing and getting exiled and going into obscurity. Where presumably he did die. He might have bought a yacht first. I don't know. Uh there's some chronological problems with Leonardo da Vinci and the helicopter, but you know you never know how space time works. So.
1: Well, Da Vinci does, so he was totally there.
0: <laughs> I concede that. I
1: concede that right.
0: point. Um <laughs> But yeah, so that's that's the end of the story of Salvestro, but only the beginning of the story of the Medici. And so we've got to look at his second cousin, Giovanni de Bici de Medici, to see how it's really done. All right. Do you want
1: do you want to read his name, Aaron? I know you want to. Uh, Giovanni de Bici de Medici. Thank you. You're welcome
0: that's that's what the
1: listeners were waiting for. They craved that. I don't like this Giovanni de Bici. <laughs> the Americans have spoken so
0: <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm sorry um <clears throat> so Giovanni um Debici <laughs> was born in thirteen sixty in you know home sweet, Florence. His father, Averardo, died in 1363, so when he's only three years old, wow. uh, leaving a moderate fortune to his children and living siblings. And as it turns out, one-fifth of a moderate fortune, presumably minus the expenses one incurs between the ages of three and adulthood, turns out to end up not being very much at all by the time you, you know, become an adult and can collect it. hmm Yeah. So, cause he yeah, I, I don't really know. I couldn't find any concrete data on what a moderate fortune was, but like, you know, let's, let's just say he's got, he's got a million in the bank that he leaves to everyone. So that divided by five, that's 200,000 each. Yeah. But then think about how many expenses you have with education and whatnot and housing and everything between ages of three and adulthood. It, it ends up that you get about, you know, like 25 bucks. Yeah.
1: And a pack of gum.
0: And a pack of gum. And like, I don't know, maybe a gift card to a
1: gas station. (laughs) And a half-smoked Newport.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, Giovanni does not come into the adulthood with very much money. But fortunately for Giovanni, he has an older cousin named Vieri, who was a successful banker in the city of Florence, and brought the boy, along with the boy's brother, Francesco, into the
1: business. It's always good to have those family connections. Yeah, that Florentine banker. Yeah, not bad.
0: Everybody loves their Florentine banker cousin. (laughs) Well, Giovanni uh, took pretty well to this occupation and learned the ropes quickly and he worked his way up in Vieri's trust until by 1386, so when he's 26 years old, he was entrusted in opening a new bank in Rome as a sort of branch slash partnership with Vieri's bank in florence so it was technically its own bank but it was like legally tied to Vieri's bank it was it was pretty the legal things were pretty confusing so i stopped reading about them because they made my small brain hurt um but it's technically a different bank but is connected to Vieri's bank fair enough so early modern Florence was a very important financial center with many firms specializing in international commerce and banking. Uh-oh. Um their banks were not focused terribly much on the sort of needs of local clients, you know, accepting deposits and extending loans, although they did do some of that at their Florentine locations. But rather they mostly focused on foreign exchange and by establishing branches in major trading centers across Europe, they were able to tap into foreign trade networks and offer exchange and transfer of credits for clients. Because you have to remember, we're dealing in a, with a pre-modern monetary system. So, there's not just like a website you can go to to find the exchange rate between money in Florence and money in, you know, across the Adriatic, in Dubrovnik, in Croatia. So if you want to do some foreign trading, you have to either get the foreign money and to do that, you have to find somebody who does know, who is is able to, you know, know, okay, well, these coins are 85% gold and these coins are 90% gold. And so, you know. The equivalent exchange is going to be this many of this coin, which weighs this much for this many of this coin, which weighs this much. It's really, it gets very, very confusing when every sort of different place you're going has a different monetary system. So that's where sort of international banking actually gets its big start is institutions that focus on exchanging money. But eventually you realize it's a lot easier if you don't actually physically move all the money every time. So instead, you might go to a Medici bank in Florence and deposit however much in Florence, Florentine currency, and they'll give you credit bills that you could then take to a Medici bank or a bank that was connected to them in a different country, and they would show you how much credit you had in the currency of wherever you were at. And so then you're a merchant, you can order your yams and um, <laughs> pieces of wood or whatever you do and and you'd be able to then get the money you needed with that bill of credit from the lo- bank in the local currency and so you didn't have to carry a bunch of money with you which is dangerous and you didn't have to worry about doing the exchanging yourself because the bank would take care of that for you and eventually more and more things were being done without the money physically changing hands at various steps so if you you know went to a very well established and trusted bank and they accepted your credit from whatever from this other bank then they would be able to give you letters of credit which you could then directly give to the people you're buying things from and get your stuff and leave and then those people would eventually get the money from the bank and that bank would get the money from the other bank that you'd originally deposited money in and so it got it got very complicated in terms of how it was organized, but it actually made things much simpler for people doing transactions.
1: Yes, and I could see where a couple of coins would slip through here and there and land in the bankers' Oh, yeah, obviously pockets. there's
0: fees. There's fees, you know. Fees happen. Um, Business fees. And, and so this is what the Medici are really into, is this foreign trade in facilitating the transfer of currency and the acquisition of goods for currency in different countries and operating across different currencies.
1: It sounds like an incredibly useful service. Exactly,
0: exactly. So that's sort of, the end. Florence is really, really big in this. That's the takeaway here. Florence is really big in this. Um, In the early 1390s, Vieri, who by this time was getting up there in years, he would have been around around 70 years old, which that's pretty old. That's pretty old. Mm -hmm. That's pretty old. He decided that he'd had enough of the grind and the hustle, and he was going to retire. So he dissolves his corporation um, and goes into retirement. And technically, there were three banks that were the legal successors of Vieri's corporation. Um, But the one that really matters was Giovanni's Bank, which had grown out of that joint partnership bank in Rome. Gotcha. <laughs> but there are two other banks which technically have part of Vieri's banking kingdom. And so, to cement his status as Vieri's successor and make it clear to everyone that sort of they want to keep doing business with, you know, this their familiar Vieri Incorporated, he's the one to do it. Giovanni's bank actually takes on all the debts and liabilities that had been outstanding when Vieri shuts down his bank. And so, he pays everything out that Vieri's bank owed, which gives him a pretty strong claim to be the sort of real successor of Vieri's corporation. Gotcha.
1: I see. All right, I'm tracking. I'm Mm. actually... For those of you who... who Actually, I don't think we even mentioned it at all. This is the second time we're recording this, and I'm actually really glad we're going through this a second time, because I'm able to pick up on this information a lot more easily. So... Yes. (laughs) Are you you there? Yes. (laughs) Yes. So, the...
0: Date that's usually sort of given for the founding of the Medici bank is 1397, since that's the year that Giovanni de' bici de Medici legally separates his bank from his nephew Averardo's bank, which is uh, one of the other three banks that had uh, been part of the succession from Vieri, and they they legally separate out, and he moves his bank. Back to Florence from Rome. So remember, his bank had been in Rome, but connected to Vieri's bank, and so he legally separates his banking and b- banking business from the other another part of Vieri's business, and he moves it back to Florence from Rome. Gotcha. And the timing the timing was good for Giovanni, um, because there were certain conditions which had allowed the less ambitious Vieri to have a very successful career as a banker and those conditions were still present and still able to be uh, capitalized upon. Nope. No pun
1: intended. <laughs> hey, capital.
0: And those, uh, those conditions mostly arose from the fact that the family that had been the top dogs of the banking industry in Florence for decades were called the Alberti and they had split into various factions and ended up destroying their business through infighting. And eventually the whole group of them were all exiled from the city. And that void was still very much present. And it's that void that allowed Vieri to start a successful bank from nothing. Um, but he just didn't think big enough. Like he was happy with his, you know, small banking corporation with, a, you know, a few branches in other places, but nothing huge. Just a, a moderate sized bank. He didn't think big enough. But Giovanni de, Bici, de Medici did Think big.
1: Interesting.
0: And so with that uh, that void still open, Giovanni intended to fill it much more permanently than his cousin had done. So he set to work raising capital and building the size and profile of his bank and intruding into new markets. So he opens branches across many of the commercial centers in Italy, um, such as Venice, and Naples, among other places. He also made the very shrewd move of using capital from the bank to open factories for the production of wool cloth. Which is what Florence was kind of famous for, was producing wool cloth. That was their big industry. And the most powerful guilds were all the things associated with that. Right, right. And since the financial services of his bank had gotten very used to handling lots of wool-related business already, he was very easily able to set up the logistics of supply and distribution. Because just think, if you've been moving the money to, you know, buy goods and transport, transport the goods and distribute the goods and all that, you're in a really good position to just start doing it on your own account instead of for somebody else, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. This makes sense.
0: And so he uses that network that he already has and the capital from the bank and... Starts up his own factories for wool. Smart, smart move, smart move, Giovanni. And despite the uh, the massive growth in business, which Giovanni oversaw, he was quite keen to keep the actual organization of the business pretty lean and mean Um, between its headquarters in Florence and its two biggest offices in Rome and Venice, there were actually only 17 employees. That's
1: impressive.
0: It is impressive. Really, The three biggest offices, 17 employees. Yeah,
1: they bring in the the, uh, the efficiency expert from office space, and next thing you know, only 17 people to employ.
0: <laughs> yep. And it was also at this time that Giovanni started a practice, which has actually ended up pretty ubiquitous in today's business world. Um, when he opened his branch in Venice, he put in a system whereby the general manager of the bank was paid in shares in the bank rather than a salary. Mm. And, of course, you see that all the time now, right, that people's compensation is mostly in shares. Like, you know, you've this fantastically wealthy CEO. Technically, his salary is only, like, what, 200000 but he's getting, like, a million in shares
1: every year. Yeah, yeah. I didn't understand how any of that worked until somebody explained it to me.
0: I still don't understand it, but Giovanni started it uh, himself at this point when he opened his branch in Venice. Again,
1: you can't you can't throw shade at the guy for being smart, you know. Like, I don't know. It seems like a lot of these ideas that he's coming up with and implementing are actually really practical in a way, especially if you're thinking big like he is.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No. This is this is true. And he was a, Giovanni was a pretty smart guy. He was a pretty uh, a pretty prescient sort of guy. Mm. He knew that the biggest drawback to commerce in the Republic of Florence was the lack of a good Mediterranean port, and that's part of why Florence Florentine banks had spent were really into handling foreign exchange and extending credit and stuff is because there wasn't that much commerce going directly through Florence, because it didn't have a Mediterranean port, and it was inland. Yeah. But Giovanni bet that Florence would end up with a port before too long, and he wanted to make sure that he was in firm control of the banking and finance of the city before that happened, since it would be a game-changer for the amount of money moving through the Republic. So I told you there was that sort of void after the Alberti thing fell apart And there were plenty of very very powerful banking families in Italy Which if they'd wanted to could have moved in and really taken over Florence's banking But because Florence didn't have a port nobody felt like investing the the time and effort and resources to really move in and consolidate that territory But Giovanni Giovanni figured that eventually Florence would end up with a port And so, in the absence of too much competition, he really got the city's banking firmly under his control before it happened. Mm. And sure enough, he was right. In 1406, Florence conquered its neighbor, Pisa, of Leaning Tower fame. Oh,
1: I know about that. I'm American.
0: (laughs) And with Pisa, they got Pisa's Mediterranean ports. Well, we don't care about that. (laughs) And no one was in a better position to rise with the increased commerce than Giovanni because he'd been he'd been planning for this and he had Florence's banking firmly under his control and suddenly Florentine banking is going to be a much, much bigger deal because Florence now controls a very, very important port
1: I bet he, on the Mediterranean. I bet, I bet he had a real spring in his step when he heard about this. <laughs> I'm. I have no doubt. Mm-hmm. I have no doubt. A little, you know, so a little was, bit of a little bit of a hop, one might say, a, a froggy little bit of joy, <laughs> positively leaping <laughs> with
0: satisfaction. So that was a big break. That was a big break, um, and another huge break came in 1410.
1: What happened and in 1410? Year,
0: a man named Baldassare Cosa was elected pope under the name John the 23rd. Um, sort of. Uh-oh. It's a really complicated situation known as the Western Schism, in which there were th- at times up to three different popes all claiming to be pope at the same time and all being supported by different groups of people. Um, John XXIII was acknowledged as Pope by France, England, Bohemia, Portugal, some of the German states, a bunch of the northern Italian city-states, including Florence, um, and by Hungary and part of Poland. Uh, there was another Pope over in Avignon, Benedict XIII, who was regarded as Pope by Aragon, Castile, Sicily, and Scotland. And there was yet a third Pope, supported by Naples, the Prince of Bavaria, the Elector of the Palatine, and parts of Germany and Poland. Also, another great political title, the Elector of the Palatine.
1: Yeah, that's also somewhere in Dark Souls. I'm telling you, these games are just history lessons. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and the, uh, the, the, um,
0: the... One of his other supporters was... A very, very prominent Italian noble with a very large army of mercenaries, called Carlo Malatesta, which literally means headache. <laughs> Carlo headache.
1: Yeah, Malatesta. Uh, headache. He needs to see a medico, huh? Ah, uh, for the Malatesta? Eh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know. At least I'm pretty sure that means headache. Yeah, Malatesta. I'm pretty sure that means
0: headache. I know I've heard a headache described with a word like that in Italy. Let me
1: see. Well, let uh, translation. Let's just put it in the old Google machine. Headache, yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, thank <laughs> you. You <God>. were right. <laughs> I, was ho- I was afraid it was like, going to end up being something like, completely different, and I was going to look like a fucking idiot. Well,
1: that wouldn't be your first time, but, you know, it'd be like the second, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. Uh, so,
0: there are three Pope people claiming to be Pope, and... Everyone is supported by different powers. And it's it's a c it's a complicated and bad situation. Like part of what kicks this off is that the um the pope had been living in France for quite a while in Avignon mm-hmm. and the Italians were very, very mad about this, especially well, the Romans especially, because Rome's whole economy was kind of based on the fact that it's where the Pope lived. Like the administration that goes along with you know running the church brings in a lot of money to the city it's like you know washington dc washington dc would wouldn't be jack shit if the federal government wasn't there because it's a big employer Mm. it brings people there it brings money there it's the whole city exists because of the administrative center it surrounds right Right. so it'd it'd be like what would happen to dc if the federal government decided to pick up and move to tulsa I mean, it would just the city. This city would collapse yeah. because it's built. It is built economically around the fact that it's a center of government.
1: So Rome. Okay. Okay. Wait, wait, hold hold up. Court, hold up. So how do we get yeah. them to move to Tulsa?
0: <laughs> I don't know, but if you come up with anything, I'm all ears because I think the federal government should be in Tulsa, uh, are you... and we should, and we should push DC into the ocean. Yes. Um, <laughs> so. The Romans were very mad about that, and so at one point, the Pope actually comes back to Rome and is kind of wishy-washy about if he's going to stay or whatnot. And then the Pope ends up dying, and the election for the new Pope is held in Rome, because that's where most of the Cardinals were at the time. And there's kind of some angry mobs rioting outside saying they're going to kill everyone if they don't elect an Italian. That's crazy. And so they duly elect an Italian, but then a bunch of the cardinals flee the city and say, this was not a valid election because we were under coercion and hold a new election and elect a different pope. And you can kind of see, you can kind of see where there'd be some question there, like if there's an angry mob saying they're going to kill you if you don't elect an Italian, that kind of makes it seem like maybe the election shouldn't count. Yeah. And, but if you're a Roman, you can also see why you would be really, really angry with the Pope living in France. And so it was just, it was a bad time. And there were multiple people claiming to be Pope with varying degrees of legitimacy. And so good old John um, is elected Pope. And he's acknowledged by most of the northern Italian city states. And he succeeds in gathering some forces and occupies Rome pretty briefly, only for a few months, before he's driven out by the King of Naples, who's the supporter of a different candidate for Pope. But during his few months, he did make one very, very important move. Mm. He established an official relationship with the Medici banking family what? who would henceforth be the official bankers to the papacy. So obviously the papacy at this point is both a spiritual and temporal institution because it runs, it has a lot of land. It runs a large part of Italy as it is. it is a secular state. And so like any state, it has to do a lot of financial transactions and yet, you, you know, taxation and commerce and all that. And so the Pope sort of appoints the Medici as the official bank that the papacy is going to use for administering its kingdom.
1: Yeah, that sounds like a big deal. Um...
0: And it turns out old John 23rd doesn't last very long, um, only a few months. <laughs> uh, but no one felt strongly enough to undo the whole Medici deal. Huh. In fact, I think it's probably fair to say that this ends up being probably the most significant thing that antipope John John Twenty-third did in his reign when you look at the big picture. Oh yeah. Because he, this break he gave the Medicis is going to have far-reaching consequences for the next few hundred years of Italian history. And he didn't do very much else in his few months in Rome.
1: Did he get a yacht?
0: He didn't get a <sighs> yacht. Um, in fact, he... Uh, well, we'll see. Um, the Medici remembered this favor. That good old John had done for them, and they came to help him in his time of need. Because after being deposed from his alleged papacy, John ends up spending about five years in an imperial prison in Germany.
1: Well, that I for being an anti—you know—I spent about five minutes in an imperial prison in Elder Scrolls Oblivion, and that wasn't very much fun. In fact, there was a guy in a robe who came and helped me out. <laughs> Is Oblivion a documentary? <laughs> Is this about John the <laughs> 23rd?
0: So, uh after about 5 years, um his ransom was paid and it was very very large by none other than Giovanni de' Bici de' Medici. Well, look at that. He came he came and bailed him out and retrieved the former Pope John the 23rd and he arranged for him to officially submit to the authority of the actual Pope because things had pretty much gotten settled, mostly settled by that point and it was clear who the Pope was. And thus he got to spend the last little bit of his life in good standing with the the Roman Church and enjoying retirement instead of enjoying a German prison.
1: You might say that was very cash money of Giovanni coming back very- it was
0: <laughs> It was very cash money, that's true. And it's kind of funny because um, I guess it kind of people thought the name was like bad luck because we didn't actually then end up with another Pope John to take o- to take John the 23rd, since it was universally decided that this guy was not the real Pope, until the end of the 50s. It was either like 59 or 60 that the Pope took the name John the
1: well, 23rd. So it had kind of like a bad... So I, I think
0: that yeah, it had a bad vibe after this guy. Also, and I didn't I didn't mention this, I didn't put this in the not script. I should have. Before he became Pope, this guy was a pirate. <laughs>
1: what? <laughs> Just throw that out there. Yeah, I should
0: have put that in the not script, but yeah, he'd uh, he was a pirate in his former life.
1: That's hilarious. Pirate Pope. Pirate anti-pope, yeah. yeah. yeah you wouldn't want to be named john after that yeah
0: after the the pirate anti-pope he
1: literally tried to pirate the papacy and he ended up at a german
0: prison but yeah so the pirate pope did not last um But what he did with the Medici Medici did last. so It
1: sure shivered some timbers out there in Florence. (laughs) It
0: did. So relying on these now close ties to the papacy, uh, Giovanni went out on a limb and kind of bet that the papacy would finally be permanently returning to Rome. Because even if things had gotten more or less settled with some of the antipopes and whatnot— the Pope still hadn't formally actually returned to Rome full-time. He was still moving around and in France a lot, and the Romans were still very unhappy with this. And there was a growing movement sort of demanding that the papacy return to Rome where it belonged. And Giovanni saw in this an opportunity. Um, He figured if he became a very big and vocal advocate of the return to Rome and that return to Rome happened, he would be in a very, very good position, especially if he, in the meantime, really bulked up his banking infrastructure in the city of Rome, because just like in Florence right now, Rome isn't really a great place for banking without the papacy. Rome is shrinking. It's losing population. It's losing money. It's not a very profitable place to do business, but if the papacy was to return, that would be a whole different story.
1: So Giovanni
0: sets to work bulking up his operation in Rome and using his influence behind the scenes to try to push things towards the uh, return to Rome. And he's in the next papal election. He throws his support behind a papal candidate who favored the policy of returning to Rome. And fortunately for him, it paid off. And Pope Martin V was elected pope in 417 and he followed through with his uh, his election promise, and he brought the papacy back to Rome permanently.
1: Well, let me just say, you said 417, but you meant 1417.
0: Yes, I did mean 1417.
1: And I also want to say, I think Pope Martin is a great name.
0: Martin Septim? What?
1: Yeah, what? What? <laughs> We're back to the Elder Scrolls thing. Yeah, we referenced two games on this show, Dark Souls and the Elder Scrolls. <laughs> Have they made, like, other games? Uh, besides, of course, Escape from Tarkov. Yeah, but, yeah, that was made by Russians. It doesn't count. You're right. They don't exist.
0: So, it, this really paid off because Giovanni had bulked up all his stuff in Rome in preparation for the inevitable business boom that would follow if the papacy returned. He'd backed the man who said he was going to bring the papacy back. And he'd made himself a very visible proponent of it. So when Martin is elected in 1417 and brings the papacy back, Giovanni is in a very, very good position because as an influential supporter of Martin and a supporter of the return to Rome, he's, you know, he's he's riding the wave. He's in a very, very advantageous position to benefit from these things. Um, yeah. For both real. in terms of public sentiment is going to be very much in favor of him in Rome, um, and so people are going to want to, you know, su- support his small business. Um.
1: <laughs> they're buying my pillows. Yeah, they're bu- <laughs>
0: they're uh, they're buying the merch from the Medici Bank. People are going around in their Medici T-shirts, and and He's uh, in. <laughs> as a token of his appreciation, Pope Martin not only confirmed and maintained the medici status as official banking managers but also put the papal treasury itself under the management of giovanni's company so now they're not just the bank that the vatican does business with but their bankers are actually managing the vatican's treasury itself
1: well that's a big deal uh yeah that is a big deal (laughs) that's huge
0: And as if that wasn't enough, Giovanni was also able to obtain some lucrative tax contracts in papal territories. Um, Have we talked about, like, pre-modern taxation on the show?
1: (laughs) As if I would
0: remember. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think we have. So basically, in the pre-modern world, before things are very centralized and very easy to communicate, collecting taxes is pretty hard. Like, you're the king in, you know, X city... How do you go about collecting taxes from all the towns and villages in your kingdom? It'd be really hard to send people out to find everyone and figure out how much they owe in taxes and all that. It'd be, it'd be a huge undertaking. It would be incredibly expensive, right, if you ran it centrally. Oh, yeah. So what people usually did, and this goes all the way back to the ancient world, as the Romans did it and everything, is you had tax contracts where you would let people buy the contracts for taxation in a particular area and it'd be an area that they were, you know, knew. And so they would have the right to collect the taxes in this area. And then they sent on to you a large percentage of it, but they got to keep a, they got to keep a slice. And so you don't have to do anything if you're the central authority. The person who has bought the contract and is, you know, a a local potentate or whatever in the area, he has to do all the work of collecting the taxes and getting all the numbers right, and then he just has to send you whatever the, you know, allotment is, and he gets to keep the rest of it. And since he knows the area, knows the towns and whatnot, it's much, much easier for him to actually collect all the taxes than if you were sending people out who didn't know the area, trying to find all the villages and things and whatnot. And so Giovanni is able to obtain some lucrative tax contracts in the Papal Kingdom, um, which can make a lot of money. And he also gets the exclusive rights to a bunch of alum mines. Mm. Now, that may not sound like a huge deal, but it just so happens that alum is an important part of the process of curing and dyeing wool. And guess who owned a bunch of wool workshops? Yeah. Yeah. Ver- vertical integration is the name of the game,
1: baby. Yeah. Man, he's got he's got it all kinds of set up.
0: He does. He does. And also around this time, um, Giovanni de, Bici, de Medici uh, gets married <laughs> to a very, very wealthy heiress. And so he gets a huge influx of capital that can then fund more expansions and more uh, businesses and stuff
1: wow (laughs) yeah so he's got money he's making moves he's make he's got money coming in six ways from sunday yeah he is making moves for sure but it's
0: important to sort of remember here because it's easy to lose sight of is that um he's not a ruler in any sense or a lord or any kind of political figure he's a banker And he was very, very cautious about not appearing as a monarch or anything like that or as some sort of noble. He actually, Giovanni made all his family wear whatever was the normal wear of merchants in Florence. He didn't let them, like, dress like, you know, wealthy nobles and aristocrats. They just had to wear normal clothes. He very much maintained the appearance of being private individuals, um and not rulers. He thought it was very important to avoid people sort of getting the, uh, getting big ideas about maybe, uh, you know, having revolution or something. He did not want to appear as any sort of king or prince. He wanted to appear as just a regular
1: guy, and that's what he made his family do, too. Well, that's, that's a, that's a, I mean, that's uh, just, again, that's the smart play, Right. Like, it,
0: yeah, no, it was it was a very very smart play on his part, um, because it paid it paid off, and he didn't really have a lot of political opposition during his lifetime.
1: Yeah, and he doesn't see he doesn't come across as like the guy who you would want to oppose, you know?
0: Hmm. Yeah. yeah, and so that's sort of where we're gonna leave it off for today, um, because up to this point, the Medici are just private individuals working in finance and commerce, not politics specifically. But that is what's going to change with Giovanni's children. And so I thought that was a good point to leave it off, is that uh, right on the cusp of the big jump from finance to politics, because Giovanni's really laid the foundation, but it's going to be up to the future generations to build on that and build that commercial power into political power. Well,
1: I'm very interested to see where this goes in the next part. Um, But I got to say, like, I kind of have a decently positive impression of Giovanni.
0: Yeah, like, he doesn't seem terrible. He really doesn't seem terrible.
1: I mean, maybe I'll change my mind next episode, who knows, but I don't have any hate for the frog right now.
0: Yeah, no, the frog seems okay. The frog seems okay. Mm.
1: Well, I think that's a good, great place to stop. So what do you think? Should we head up to the surface? I think
0: so. I've got to make more coffee.
1: Oh, but it's 10 o'clock at night where you are, right? The streets never sleep, Aaron. This is true. This is true. All right. Well, let's go get your coffee brewed, and off we go.
0: So, Aaron, if you had to make bank, get it, in 15th (laughs) century Italy and you couldn't finance the wool industry, how would you do it?
1: Um, Let's see can you can't really start a podcast back then, can you?
0: There would be certain technical restraints.
1: Yeah, I I don't know if I don't know if there would be the audience for it. You know, back then people still listened to the town criers. You know, so I couldn't do it with a podcast. I guess maybe uh, how would I do it? Being a communicator, I think I'd I think I'd become some kind of advocate for a religion I made up. And spread it in the streets until I got burned at the stake. But up till that point, I would just have all the money and maybe take over Munster. I know that's not in Italy, but I could get there. <laughs> it, no. Yeah, I, I mean,
0: I. I don't know if you really make
1: bank before you got burned at the stake. I don't know. I I got the nickname A. Ron Hubbard at work, so <gasps> I might might be able to pull it off. <laughs> So, but what about you, though? You know, you probably got a smarter plan than that. If you had to make bank, uh, get it, in 15th century Italy, and you couldn't finance the wool industry, how would you do it?
0: That is an excellent question. I wonder who wrote such a good question.
1: Um, Yeah, some genius. Clearly,
0: clearly. Oh, hmm. I think I'd probably get myself elected anti-pope and, like, pillage the Vatican treasury and then escape to, like, Sardinia or something.
1: Could you say enough Hail Marys to get that off your ass?
0: Uh, well, if I'd had gotten the Vatican treasure, I wouldn't have to work anymore, so I could fit a lot of Hail Marys into a day.
1: There you go. There you go. You retire, you get a yacht, you say Hail Marys, while you drink your martini. Yep. Mai Tais and Hail Marys. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. I feel like that's already a podcast. Mai Tai with Mary. I hope not. Ugh. It's just some... Ant who gets way too drunk on the air and praise the rosary rants about. (laughs) Yeah, praise the rosary. (laughs) Well, with that, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably an anti pope, so consider funding the show by giving us the Vatican Treasury or becoming a patron on patreon.com. And if Patreon is not your thing, you can always drop us a little tip with a note in Venmo. That's at WTADP. Everything's appreciated. For voiceover services by me, Aaron C., email Aaron at wetalkaboutdeadpeople.com. If you want to talk to either or both of us on your own podcast, also email Aaron at wetalkaboutdeadpeople.com. Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. I just got an update on that, by the way. We've got some new stuff coming. In the meantime, you can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with that being said, we'll close out and let the sound of the Renaissance play you out.
2: Hath a swift hand, he doth gaze upon the field, and he maketh a plan, and he hath a jaunty cap. Perched upon his head, He's a long-bow long man, he did find.
1: what are you? I'm autistic as shit. I'm a man.
2: I'm a Canadian.
0: I am a Christian. I'm for real. I'm a white guy. I'm ready to kill. I'm a primitive. I'm like a raccoon in the garage. I basically, I am a fraud. I'm a patriot. I am 1776. I'm liberal. Reptoid clone of John Wayne uh, and Elvis. I'm in a scientific matrix grid in the early phases of being inserted into an extermination system.